0: Welcome to Iron Rhetoric, with your intrepid host, Pastor Brett McAtee. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and, behind the dim unknown, standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Uh, Hello, this is Pastor Brett Again, with Iron Rhetoric, here with uh, my tech sidekick, Matthew Smith. Um, we need to be thankful for Matt's work because I wouldn't probably be doing this um, if I didn't have Matt uh, shepherding the technology because I am a techno idiot. I have no ability when it comes to technology. Um, my wife just today showed me how to send a audio message on the phone, and it took me half an hour to practice to be able to, Get to the point where I was doing it. So again, kudos uh to to Matt uh, for running the machinery and for being my sound off man. Every once in a while, I bounce something off of him. So what we have for you this this evening, I was I, I end up saying this evening because we tape most of the most of these in the evening. But then I am brought up short when I say what we have for you this evening, and I think well, people could be listening to me at in the morning. They could be listening to me in the afternoon. So whenever you're listening to this, what we have is. Uh, a quote in some conversation by a book by Herman Bavinck um, titled The Family I think that's the title of it and I'm not citing from Bavinck himself in this podcast we're, we're we're citing from the introduction as uh given by the translator James Englinton to this book by the way I would I would strongly recommend uh this book by Bavinck It's a wonderful work on the family. Indeed, there isn't anything by Bavink that I wouldn't recommend. He's been one of those uh, formative guides for me in life. Um, I probably read over a dozen uh, Bavink books. I've never walked away disappointed. The guy was absolutely brilliant. Um, Now, again, he's not the only theologian I've read, and he's not the only hero I have, um, but he's certainly in the constellation. And I'll say for those for the initiated who read the descriptions to the podcast episodes, I'll, we will include a link to The Christian Family by Herman Bavink. Thanks, man. And that and that, uh, that reminds me, I got the title wrong. It's not just family, it's The Christian Family. Uh, again, a great work. And again, Bavink has been very influential on on me along with a host of others. Maybe at some point we could just do a podcast that the great men that have walked through my life in terms of, Um, the authors. Um, They're the reason. um, God's grace ultimately is the reason why I am who I am. But, you know, a man is, in many respects, not completely, but a man is what he reads. And that's why reading good books is so important. We've lost that ability in our culture because we've become a video people. We've lost the ability to read good books. Um, There's Perhaps people read, in some cases, even that's an oddity, but... Too often the people who read are still reading trash, and we need to up our game in terms of what we're making a habit of reading. Now, I don't want to make anybody feel guilty because I understand having to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Um, That's what I did the first um, almost 10 years of my ministry. I was a tent maker, and so I was working at United Airlines and I was also pastoring churches in that first decade and I had a young family to boot. Um, so I get being so busy that we don't have, a person doesn't have time to read. I understand that um, I used to do crazy things to get my reading time in. Um, I'm a little shy to admit this because I'm really telling stories of myself and I'm telling things that I wouldn't want anybody else to do. But i used uh, I used to drive a sixty sixty five miles to get to work well when I was in South Carolina I had to drive forty five miles one way to work and when I was in Michigan at the first three years uh, in the ministry here I had to drive an hour one way and an hour back and I would spend my time driving uh, often reading I had perfected the ability to both read and drive at the same time again not something I would uh I would recommend, not something I would do today. Uh, Frankly, it was pretty stupid. Um, But I just got so sucked into books, I couldn't put them down. Um, I would read every chance I got the opportunity, though, as well. I mean, when I was packing airplane pits with uh, luggage and freight and mail, um, there would sometimes be a five-minute period where they're changing out the uh, carts in order to bring new stuff, and I would sit there in the airplane pit pull out my uh, small, uh, something that could fit in my pocket that was still good reading material, and I would read. So I've always believed in reading, uh, even from a, from the tenderest of ages. And I get I get to do, now that's part of my job description is to read, and I understand that everybody has that time and ability. And it would probably be good to do a podcast to talk about all the wonderful men and some women that God has has chosen to walk through my life because uh, I'd like you to read them too. Having read them myself, and been so profoundly influenced by them. So that's kind of a segue. I didn't really mean to get into that, but here's the quote we're starting with. It's a somewhat longer quote, and then we're going to uh, have some commentary, bullet point commentaries on what's said here. And remember, this is from Bavings, the Christian family, and this is from... The introduction, pages 14 to 15, by James Englinton, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Here we're quoting quote from Englinton in the introduction. The movement within which Bavinck rose to prominence, neo-Calvinism, found much of its initial momentum as a rebellion against the influence of the French Revolution across Europe. This struggle to counter this impact of the revolution exerts a defining influence on much of Bavinck's thought on Christianity and culture, unquote. Um, let me just pause here to say that when we're talking about the momentum as a rebellion against the influence of French Revolution across Europe, we have to keep in mind that um, one of the chaps that started that anti-French Revolution movement across Europe was a chap named Groen van Prinister. and his book, Unbelief and Revolution, is another book that I highly, highly recommend, uh, for your reading pleasure. So Groen Van Prinister was the chap that was largely at the base of the movement. And then one of his main chaps was, uh, Kuyper, And then Bavink was another important, uh, person, uh, in this movement. And a- actually I have as great as Kuiper was, I have more esteem, much more esteem actually for, uh, For I think he was a clearer and a more consistent thinker than Kuiper. Anyway, moving on to the rest of this quote. But notice what uh, Engleton has set forth here is that um, this neo-Calvinism was against the influence of the French Revolution across Europe. Uh, Going on to quote, quote, "...the revolution was an attempt to cast aside all, all the old distinctions of class and power, equality and fraternity were the new values." Gone were concepts like monarchy, social class, and theism. The new de facto deity, reason, was set in opposition, direct opposition to divine revelation. The change attempted in revolutionary France was highly ambitious. It was a movement of recreation. An upheaval instigated to change every aspect of French life. The 19th century revolutionary intellectual Edgar Quinet recognized that such a sudden break with an entire social system could only happen if the pre-existing sense of social interconnectedness between citizens was broken. Those who have until now existed primarily in relationship to each other with a common culture must suddenly think of themselves primarily not as existing in a common culture but primarily as individuals. Quintet recognized this as central central not just to the French Revolution but to all revolutionary movements. Thus, in order to change an entire society, all the old social connections had to disappear and the individual had to take their place. Um, the great irony, Engleton says, perceived by the likes of Bavink and Kuyper, was that although revolutionaries were told of their newfound individuality, in reality they became far more homogeneous in a pre-revolutionary world. Revolutionary France was a place where all was, were pressured to dress and speak alike, where human worth did not exist beyond one's social standing, hence the drive for a homogenized society, and where institutions like Christian theism as a pro-social diversity were seen as obstacles, they were seen as obstacles to those goals. Having seen these ideals taking hold in France, Bavink was motivated to combat their influence in the Dutch culture. So that context sets the scene for his thoughts on the family as a united social entity. His argument was that the family is not an arbitrary collection of individuals who may or may not have much in common by way of belief. Rather, he argues in favor of the family as an organism made up of distinct but complementary people who together form the building blocks of society. Unquote. Um, And that's the, the piece from the introduction Uh, James Anglican's Bavink's The Christian Family. Um, Notice, though, something that I'm going to say right at the outset, that when Bavink works on setting the scene for his thoughts on the family as a united social entity, um, if you pull that string far enough, it's easy to get to kinism from that point. Uh, That family's an arbitrary collection of individuals, um, but rather the family is an organism made up of distinct but complementary people who together form the building blocks of society. Um, that could almost be read as a, a Kinnis tenet. Uh, the family is an organism made up of distinct but complementary people, complementary people, complementary people. Um, the Kinnis would say that that complementary includes race and ethnicity, Who no longer form the building blocks, who together rather form the building blocks of society. A few observations, I think I have eight of them here uh, on this quote. Uh, First, we would say that the success of the French Revolution was not limited to the fall of the Bastille or um, the decapitation of King Louis' head or Marie Antoinette's, it was not uh, limited to the idea of setting up a republic. The success of the French Revolution was the beginning of the end for Christendom in the West. Um, and keep in mind that that the French Revolution was, out of that grew the, um, much of the Enlightenment. Now, some will say that the Enlightenment drove the French Revolution, but I think it's a chicken-and-egg argument, it's both and. Uh, Enlightenment principles drove the French Revolution, but the French Revolution then in turn drove Enlightenment principles. So the, the success of the French Revolution was the beginning of the end for the idea of Christendom in the West um, in exchange for the anti-Christ principles of the revolution as they lived on in the turmoil of Europe um, in 1815 and 1848. Um, so, yeah, you have 1798, uh, roughly the, the, the time of the French Revolution, but that revolution percolates across Europe um, and has not actually quit percolating uh, even to this day, so that you have outbreaks in Europe again of different places of the French Revolution spirit. And Groen van Pernister started the anti-revolutionary party in the Netherlands in order to combat uh, these revolutionary principles. The Antichrist principles of the revolution came to the States, then across the pond, as they were wont to say, with the work of the Jacobins, in our own history here in the States in 1861 to 1867. Um, So what I'm contending there is that the French Revolution made its home not only in Europe following uh, the French Revolution and even the dismissal, final, and defeat of uh, Bonaparte did not end the work of the French Revolution. Indeed, the French Revolution continued on in Europe and also jumped upon... And it was The Principles of the French Revolution that I would contend uh, was much the intellectual seedbed of uh, the war against the Constitution. Um, A good book on that, I can't remember the author's names is uh, Lincoln's Marxists. Um, The Antichrist Principles of the Revolution found a permanent home then um, in Russia um, for 70 years in 1918. Um, so, again, what we're doing is we're tracing out the history of revolution, how it went. It started with the French Revolution, uh, expressed itself in, in many revolutions in Europe in 1815 and 1848, jumped upon, uh, came here in 1861. Um, many people who were fleeing these revolutionary Europe uh, expressions came to the States to express, to escape, rather, uh, persecution, and were found many in the cadre who supported Lincoln and what Lincoln was doing, which I would contend was another expression of the French Revolution. Also, then, we would say, I would contend, I would argue that the same mindset of the French Revolution shows up in Russia in 1918. Now, again, I'm not saying it's the exact same ideological intellectual movement that's driving it, but I am saying that you can find strands uh, between... Uh, the revolutionary spirit of 1798 uh, in Paris, and the revolutionary spirit in 1918 in Moscow. Um, Matt and I, before the broadcast, were were actually talking about the linkage between um, modernity and Enlightenment ideas and what's called liberal ideas and wokeism. Um, There's some discontinuities between the two, but there's also continuities as well. Um, the ideas and principles of the French Revolution continue to form and shape, I would say, the world that we occupy today. Um, wokeism is, is still uh, the principles of the French Revolution coming to their fullest expression, um, blooming in, in, in its fullest intent. The liberty, so called, of the French Revolution remains today the attempt of fallen man to find liberty from God. So when the French Revolution. Uh, when they cried out uh, uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, they were using those words and dropping them in a completely different worldview so that they had different uh, meanings as existing in those worldviews. I mean, Christians are all for liberty, but not as the French revolutionists used the word liberty. In point of fact, the revolutionary word liberty is indeed means lawlessness. The equality of the French Revolution remains today as the ongoing attempt to level all distinctions by insisting that all hierarchy arrangements are merely social constructs to be deconstructed. And so the fraternity of the French Revolution remains today as the bumper sticker meme to coexist and the ongoing recitation of the fatherhood of God of all men and the brotherhood of all men one to another. So the Christian might be able to accept liberty, equality, fraternity, but only as existing in its own worldview. And when you put those words in a Christian worldview, then then those following the French Revolution spirit are not going to agree because for the Christian, liberty means ordered behavior, right? Um, Liberty is constrained by God's law. Uh, We use the word equality. We can use, Christians can use the word equality, but we don't mean by equality an Anabaptist or French Revolution leveling of everything. What we mean is that all men are fallen. They are they are equal in their fallenness in the sense that some are not fallen and some are fallen. They're all fallen. They're equal in their uh, responsibility before God, and they're equal in terms of being responsible to God's law. Those are the areas, and even there would be some qualifications would be needed, but those are the areas that we could argue for equality. But again, The humanists, those who have imbibed the spirit of the zeitgeist, the French Revolution, um, are going to be radically opposed to those definitions. And fraternity, of course Christians believe in fraternity. Um, We talk about all the time the fellowship of the saints. Um, There is a fraternity, but the fraternity that the Christian talks about is not a blanket fraternity with all mankind. It's a fraternity among fellow Christians. Um, So that's the first point that we wanted to tease out from this quote. The second For Bavinck, the revolutionary worldview had to be opposed by all right-minded Christians because revolutionary ideology is part of the disordered, sin-sick reality that nature was poisoned with. Revolutionary ideology comes from the pit and smells of sulfur. It creates a sick reality because it identifies sin with nature and creation with the fall. And so in order to attack sin in the fall, they attack nature and thus seek to pull down all of God's institutional created social order that includes family, state, and society, preferring instead a sinful order where God's diversity is blended into a humanistic, unitarian sameness. This creates the sick reality that Neo-Calvinism, in its best expression, has always opposed. Thirdly, what Anglican writes above, what he teaches us about Bavink and the Neo-Calvinist school is that they oppose this revolutionary model that attempted to overthrow God's ordained social order that was antithetical to revolutionary liberty, equality, and fraternity. This, av- anti- av- l- a- f- this anti-revolutionary Calvinism of men like Groen van Prenister, Bavink, and Kuiper, found later Calvinist theologians like Dabney in 19th century America and Rush dooney in 20th century carrying the anti-revolutionary torch of the neo-Calvinist founders. Now, that doesn't mean that Rush, Duny, and Dabney were all in complete 100% agreement with uh, Van Prenticer, um with Bavink and Kuyper. But they did have this one source of commonality. They, wo- they all were ant- rabidly, rabidly, rabidly anti-revolutionary in the sense of what was uh, foisted in the French Revolution and what has... Uh, blossomed even since and continues to blossom even today. They were adamantly opposed to that. This reminds us that there remains a threat of anti-revolutionary fervor that has been characterized as biblical Calvinism. In this anti-revolutionary Calvinism, we find the insistence that any Christianity that makes peace uh, with the desires of the continuing revolutionary vision is a Calvinism that is, no Calvinism. So when we see that Calvinism, variants of it are almost surrendering to the zeitgeist or saying, as R2K does, leave the zeitgeist alone, leave the common realm alone, um, those that follow in the train of Van Prentister, Bavink, Dabney, uh, Rush Dooney, and others are just appalled because they understand that the revolutionary spirit has to be resisted and they go far as so far as to say is to not resist the anti the revolutionary spirit to not resist the revolutionary spirit is is agreement by silence fifth when we consider this quote this lack of this basic understanding of how biblical calvinism as the essence of biblical christianity results in the consequence that modern Christianity reinterprets itself through the grid of revolutionary ideology. When Calvinists and all other Christians refuse to understand what has occurred with the success of revolutionary ideology, that Christianity then is interpreted through the lens of liberty, equality, and fraternity. What this means is that modern Christianity is, in majority report, revolutionary Christianity. In other words, if we're not opposing um, revolution, revolutionary thought. And if we're trying to instead make peace with it, uh, we're really employing Christianity in the service of revolution. Instead of challenging the continued onslaught of the, the revolution, and we would say ultimately this is a revolution against heaven, what happens is that Christianity seeks to make peace with revolution. A modern church, then we would say, that is not self-aware that it must be anti-revolutionary, ends up discipling its people into being sanctified subscribers of the revolution. Christians who are not epistemologically self-conscious regarding the ongoing revolution are Christians who stand in the way of counter-revolution, which we would call Reformation. Sixthly, we would say it's not going too far to say that Christianity that is interpreted in the grid of revolutionary thought is a different Christianity that is interpreted through the grid of anti-revolution. Um, and the reason I, I keep returning to that kind of idea is because, frankly, the, the church in the West today and the church in the States is largely a revolutionary Christianity. We have bought into the pre- principles of the French Revolution. We have reinterpreted Christianity through those principles, and we are then, the old Pogo cartoon, we have met the enemy and he is us. And so we need to wash ourselves out of this anti-revolutionary mindset that all of us, including myself, were were steeped in. We were we were born into it. Uh, think of the Matrix. Uh, we were in a pod, and we were just saturated uh, with it in our schooling, and in the media, and in everything. Um, it's what formed and shaped us. And if we're going to insist on reformation and look for God's renewal, then we had to get out of the Matrix, unplug ourselves to the Matrix, and and get on those submarines. What was the name of the the submarine? Do you remember? Okay, we'll have to come up with it. Maybe you remember it, listener. That was a submarine that the Matrix guys ran around in the electrical grid. Uh, seven, the anti-revolutionary Calvinism finds in the death of Christ the healing of the cosmos and a deliverance from personal individual revolution that results in the healing of social order revolution. In other words, it's the premise of, of Calvinism, of, of of Christianity, that when we're saved... Yes, we're saved from our sin, we're saved from self, we're saved from the wrath of God, we're saved from being under the dominion of the devil. but we're also saved from this revolutionary mindset um, that we're all prone um, to think by way of our just by way of our sinful nature. Um, the revolutionary thought of the French Revolution is natural to us because it appeals to our sinful nature at its heart, the french revolution was was placing the banner uh against the reality of God and who he who he is. The French Revolution ultimately was an attack on God. That's why you had mottos like uh no god uh, no no God, no king." that was one of the mottos. Another motto is "We'll not be happy or satisfied until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest right. So the French Revolution is uh, is at its core theological, an attack on on biblical Christianity. It is saying loudly and with canons, we will not have this man rule over us, and it's that revolutionary spirit that has continued to uh, continue to evolve and continue to gain steam, whether you tie it to. The French Revolution, the revolutions in Europe in 1815 and in 1848, whether you jumped upon and look at the French Revolution as it's incarnated in in what's called the Civil War in 1861 to 1877 here, whether you jumped upon again in 1918 Russia, whether you moved from 1918 Russia to 1949 China, uh, it's all this war upon God. That's what the French Revolution mindset is. Um, If I had to go back and do it all over again, I told Jane this recently, I would probably... Um try to get my master's and PhD if such a thing existed in in anti-revolutionary thought. as it turns out that that's much of what my life's been devoted to as it is is seeing trying to locate and see the the revolutionary thought that started with the Garden of Eden uh, was really in place in the Renaissance, um, came to full flower, uh, destructive flower in the French Revolution, and wherever you find man. Rebelling against God, there you find the French Revolution's spirit. Uh, eighthly, there is a neo-Calvinism that is claimed by leftist Christians, interestingly enough. They do agree that all things must be interpreted through a b- biblical grid, but the biblical grid has already itself been reinterpreted through a revolutionary grid. So neo-Calvinists who advocate for a social order that is consistent with revolutionary goals is not the neo-Calvinism or the anti-revolutionary movement of Groen van or or of, uh, of Bavink. So this reminds us, this quote that we started with Englickon, Englington. this reminds us of uh, what's at stake, and of course that, that also gets into the family. Um, this anti-revolutionary spirit should also characterize how we want to protect our families because the revolutionary spirit wants to attack that, uh, wants to attack the family, wants to pull down the family, that's part what we're seeing going on with the rise of uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, uh, homosexual marriage. It's not really about sodomites wanting to get married. It's about destroying the concept of marriage. Uh, the same now with the trans movement. It's not, it's not really about giving people trannies, the civil rights. It's about destroying the Christian notion of family because if they can redefine family, they can broaden it and make the definition of family elastic to include all these perverted categories, then the definition of family itself uh, goes by the wayside. It's that whole idea of family means everything, then it means what? It means nothing. Right? So that's really what this work is all about. It's a continuing, ongoing work of attacking the family. Um, and this book that uh, Bavinck writes, The Christian Family, is a good. A, a good work supporting a, the idea of a biblical family, and we really—I mean—people will ask me, Pastor, uh, what can we do um, to stop the madness? And my answer almost always is, "We've—we've we've got to protect our families. We've got to keep our children. We've got to make sure that, by God's grace alone, of course, that we are able to pass on the faith to the generations that come behind us." And—and and an anti-revolutionary faith, a biblical faith, because if we keep losing our children, which is commonly the case, to the revolutionary zeitgeist, then the idea that we're going to have Reformation in the church, or Reformation in the civil social order, or Reformation in our schools, um, in our guilds, our trades, um, that's probably not going to happen. Um, with God, all things are possible, but you understand the linkage between keeping our families as Christian and the rise of reformation. If we, if we continue to lose our families, if our family keeps keeps getting reinterpreted through a revolutionary grid, so that's really the family is just a place where everybody sleeps together in the same house and shares meals and nothing more. um, Then we're going to become revolutionary Christians. And at that point, the salt has lost all its savor. So again, um, this is, been a, a brief look at a quote in Bavink's book, uh, introduction, and then pulling that string a little bit to tease out the implications of that. We thank James Eglinton for his work on translating and for making this work available. Um, thank you for taking the time to listen and God bless you as tiny Tim would say, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week. Look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor FM. Don't you know she could bring a good feeling? Ain't having such a long time. Save my life, I'm going down.